I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash recommend today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. What does the future hold for St. Louis and how do we get there? This is Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Of course, stay tuned to KMOX for the latest on Ukraine. And on our local innovation show right now, we've got some local angles, local experts, and local advice you can use related to the situation. First of all, you might remember those cyber attacks against Ukraine. Well, experts say that those could just be a sign of what's to come for the U.S. and our allies if the tensions with Russia don't ease. A local expert says what you can do to prepare coming up. And then Travis Sheridan talks with the heads of both LaunchCode and Cortex, the Cortex Innovation District, about the geospatial industry, efforts to get more workers in there. The last two weeks we've told you about NGA, the intelligence agency, and and just how geospatial has been a huge part of the situation, the response, and, and the knowledge of exactly what's happening in Ukraine. And then finally, we've got our virtual consumer editor and our media literacy expert who are going to tell you amid the flood of fraudulent videos that have purported to be of events in the Ukraine conflict, uh, but are not necessarily, how to sort through it all and know what's factual and is depicting a real event. That's all coming up on this edition of Nothing Impossible. Stay tuned. Michael Calhoun with you, Travis Sheridan, just ahead on KMOX. Now back to Nothing Impossible on the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Well, experts say cyber attacks against Ukraine that we've seen may be a sign of what's to come for the U.S. and our European allies if these tensions with Russia don't ease. KMOX virtual consumer editor Megan Lynch got some insight from a St. Louis expert at a security firm about what our nation needs to be watching for when it comes to potential cyber attacks. Unfortunately, I don't have to speculate too much because we're already seeing some cyber attacks that are being used Jonathan Mell, Operations and Marketing Strategist at QNET Security. One of the earlier ones that we saw uh, in Ukraine were um, that some government computers for government employees were uh, compromised and threatening messages were put on the screen of those computers. Um, And so that can be certainly part of a psychological warfare campaign where you are trying to unnerve uh, the entire populace of, of, of a country. Mel says Ukraine has also seen distributed denial of service attacks at banks. When they logged onto their account, it looked like they had zero balance in their account for some time, which is obviously a very scary thing. If things escalate, he warns Ukraine, the United States and its allies could see cyber threats against critical infrastructure. We saw cyber attacks here on U.S. soil um, uh, last year with in Oldsmark, Florida, we saw attacks on a water treatment plant, and thankfully those were stopped. But 
if they had been successful, it's conceivable that they could have put chemicals in the water supply that could have harmed people on a, on a grand scale. Mel tells KMOX it's a frightening thought that someone could turn off power during a cold snap. When you think about how connected our world is and how much we rely on the automated system for our day-to-day lives to provide us power, to provide us clean water, that's very scary. In the last two years, he points out, more functions have moved online to support remote work, which creates more targets. One of the main ways that state actors try to access computer systems is one of the oldest, simplest, and most common phishing attacks. Employees duped into clicking links or providing information through email. Information technology and operation technology systems often have connections that hackers can infiltrate. Those run on software that can have fundamental flaws they can be vulnerable to what we call zero-day exploits. The idea that occasionally, even with the best of intentions, programmers can make a mistake. They can cause uh, a vulnerability. Another scenario Mel points out is simply that nation-states can use what's called brute force to access sensitive networks. Even if something is password-protected, it's encrypted. If the encryption is out of date or older or not being maintained properly, which is more common than you think, then you can simply throw a lot of computing power at it, and you can essentially decode the system. QNET focuses on a hardware solution that captures network data and encrypts fragments. Mel says it creates constantly changing keys faster than any existing computer systems can decode. Mel says under that system, even if an employee falls prey to a phishing email, the spread of any malicious software could be limited. The latest warning from the FBI says Russian state actors have targeted the defense industrial base, healthcare and public health, energy, telecommunications, and government facilities sectors. Thank you, Megan. And coming up, Travis Sheridan talks with the heads of Cortex and Launch Code about geospatial careers in St. Louis. It's nothing impossible on KMOX. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing impossible on KMOX. All right. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible. Travis Sheridan and I am uh, chatting with so much going on in the world right now, especially related to national security. And, uh, you know, when people get out of the military with these with, you know, high levels of security clearance, um, maybe there's opportunities for them to transition into civilian life uh, and really leveraging that security clearance that, that, that takes so much time to, to actually get. So I'm joined by uh, Sam Fiorello, Cortex's president and CEO, and Jeff Mazur from LaunchCode, CEO of LaunchCode. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Thanks, thanks for having me, Travis. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about this, this new partnership and this program between Cortex and LaunchCode that's really looking at leveraging uh, talent that has these high levels of se- security clearance. Jeff, why don't you go ahead and start? I'll be happy to. Sure. Well, to your point, Travis, you know, one of the things that the St. Louis civic community has been heavily invested in is figuring out ways that we can do a better job of meeting the needs of employers in this region and of the employers that we want to bring to this region for the types of talent and skills and credentials and qualifications that those employers need. And this initiative, this project, this partnership between Cortex and LaunchCode was really developed to speak directly to filling that need um, and to use that opportunity to to, uh, tap into the talent base that you're talking about, people who are transitioning out of the military who have a security clearance. And so we're really proud that we're at the front end of this partnership that's going to put together opportunities to 
take those folks as they come out and transition out of the military, give them some really high quality, high demand skills for technologies of tomorrow, um, and put them in close proximity to employer partners who really need those people today to do the work that's going to drive the defense community, it's going to drive national security, that's going to drive all of the geospatial uh, industry that we hope flourishes in this region. So it's a ambitious partnership, but one that we think speaks to a really important need. And, and I'm so proud that we've been able to forge this partnership with, with Sam and the folks at Cortex to make it happen. Yeah, Sam, tell us a little bit about how this fits into Cortex's strategic initiatives and goals. Yeah. You know, thanks, Travis. Yeah, so Cortex is, at, at our core, Cortex is an economic engine for the region. We, uh, you know, I took the job and two years ago and the folks before me had done such an amazing job building um, an innovation district with hundreds of employers and thousands of employees, heavily tech focused. And so I inherited this and looking forward at new things to leverage, the massive investment by the federal government and the NGA, National Geospatial Administration was a wonderful thing for our region to leverage. And, and we hope to both um, have homegrown companies grow and thrive and also to recruit companies or divisions of companies to St. Louis so that they can grow and thrive and provide economic activity. And when you ask a CEO, again, either if it's a fledgling company or an established company, a division of a massive company like uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, in the tech world, your number one pain point is, can I get the talent I need to grow my business and do the work that needs to be done? And St. Louis, like any other region, that is a major nut to crack. And so Cortex, understanding that that's a vital offering, um, we looked around and we said, you know, we have the good fortune of in our community having uh, best-in-class training um, uh, talent developer like LaunchCode and, and Jeff and, his, and, and Ryan from Jeff's team at LaunchCode who are already doing great work so that when they approached us and talked about a partnership, it, we embraced it um, with both arms saying, this is such a win. And if we can find more ways to do this, this is also a terrific way to leverage the investment that the federal government has made in training these um, former military. And it'd be a shame to have that go to waste. So you can leverage that investment. And also, um, they tend to be heavily, there's a heavy diversity, equity, inclusion play. You have folks who are uh, racial diversity and different ages and a whole host of things. So um, it really just fits in the center of the bullseye with what Cortex is and wants to be more of. And that is oftentimes, um, and maybe always, we're going to do that in partnership with the best in class provider. And, and we are fortunate with this one, to, that provider to be launch code. Well, Sam, you, you gave the example of Booz Allen Hamilton and you know major consultants firms like that, traditionally, uh, you know, a lot of their recruiting is going to uh, MBA programs or engineering schools and trying to recruit people directly out of colleges and universities uh, nationwide, if not worldwide. Uh, but, you know, a college graduate, if they haven't had military experience, may have the technical skills, but they may not have that security clearance. Uh, talk to us, uh, Jeff, talk to us a little bit about the, the role that the security clearance can play, and then specifically the type of training that they uh, a person might get through launch code, because they're not, you're not making them go through an engineering program or an MBA program or anything like that. This is shorter term training, correct? That's right. And uh, you make a great point that there is lots of cost and friction bound up in finding the people who have both the right skill set 
the right existing training and the right credentials that are needed, the, the security clearance that's so critical for so much of this national security and intelligence community work. And you know, really one of the key premises here is um, you can build a partnership and you can build a program that helps take so much of that friction out of the process for employers. So instead of trying to go out there and find the perfect storm and find the unicorn person who has the clearance and who has the exact um, training and skill in this particular technology that you need, and then find a way to get them to St. Louis and get them in, um, this puts all that all those pieces together in an easily deployable format. So we find the people who have that background, that that security clearance, and who have all the outward markings of people who are going to be really good at this skill. And then we bring them together. We let the employers talk to us about what what they like about these people and which ones they want to bring onto their team. And then we can deploy a really focused, targeted training curriculum so that we're building in the exact skills that the employer needs. And then onboard them to the employers. And instead of going out and hunting and, and gathering uh, people from a whole around the world who have this unique set of characteristics, you're finding great people, and then you're building those characteristics that you need into them. And, and we think that's a really powerful solution that allows employers to bring on bunches of people at a time and for us to really grow a, a new base of a particular kind of talent here in St. Louis that's going to serve that entire employer universe. Well, as a, as a veteran myself, I know that that transition leaving the military, and, and I was in the Air Force. The Air Force careers are, of all the branches, the Air Force careers are almost the ones that are easily transferable to civilian life. But if you look at the other branches, the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, uh, Coast Guard even, uh, you know, their security clearance has transfer, transfers to the outside. But sometimes the jobs they these folks do, these soldiers and, uh, and Marines do, don't necessarily translate into the civilian world. Uh, talk a little bit about just the, the cadre of veterans and how difficult that transition might be when you have a great skill set that works while you're serving your country and in uniform and in a branch of the service, but there's not an analog outside of the military service ranks. Yeah, Travis, I, I would say that, you know, if you look at the, the technology trends and the sort of how location science, data analytics, geospatial, those are all technologies that are, they're ubiquitous now. They're embedded in whether you're growing food on a farm or delivering health services or trying to keep your country or company safer. Um, really critical skills. So these men and women who are trained by the federal government in the military have got skills that are immediately transferable to the, 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 the um, civilian world. And they're, they're in such high demand that the regions that are going to be the winners in this next phase, as we get even more technologically advanced and things like machine learning and AI and our ability to have sensors everywhere gathering mountains of data that you have to make sense of so that you can have actionable information for management to, to do things. Um, these, are, these are perfect candidates for that transition. And we're lucky to have this confluence of that plus a, um, a foothold in an industry and, 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 and a soon to be a, a global expertise in this location science because we can leverage things like the NGA investment and Boeing in town and the other things we have. And so it's incumbent on people like me at Cortex and, and Jeff at LaunchCode and others as to how do we make sure that the region can have the talent 
available to these employers that they need so that if they're in St. Louis, they're going to think this is the greatest place to grow my business and I'm um, having my needs met. Or if they're not in St. Louis, they look over saying, well, look at that creative partnership that uh, Launch Code and Cortex have made that that is um, taking a, a an investment that's made and, and leveraging it for my job. That's what we're here for, to provide this region with a competitive advantage and provide individuals a, a chance for really super fulfilling careers. So uh, I'm, I'm really glad to be part of this. Well, and, you know, we, we've referenced uh, in other conversations uh, on the show, the St. Louis 2030 jobs plan. And I know that that plays an important part, almost a uh, undergirding uh, the importance of a collaboration like this. Uh, 2030 jobs plan calls for inclusive growth, sector focus, increased collaboration. Now, Jeff, those are three things that uh, could also be taglines or brand attributes of, of launch code. Tell us a little bit about uh, you know, how those three things, inclusive growth, sector focus, and increased collaboration has really allowed launch code to, to grow into what it is today. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I do think that that notion of collaboration is really important. Part of why this uh, uh, project will be successful is in part due to collaboration between two organizations like Cortex and LaunchCode, but also due to a, an incredibly collaborative approach to employers who are in the region and the ecosystem and um, doing something that is responsive to the particular needs. And just by way of example, when, when I think we first started this conversation, those insights um, where you can have them driven towards the things that are needed by companies in a particular sector that is a opportunity for growth for the region. And then uh, to use all of the tools that you've built through those conversations as a mechanism for bringing new people uh, into a skill and bringing new people into a particular industry or job type, those, those three things really then start to merge. And at the nexus of that, you've got something that suits the needs of industry, that suits the needs of individuals who are looking for a career change that suits a region that's trying to develop itself in a way that creates more inclusive economic growth in some pretty specific industries and sectors. So um, I, I don't think that if if we weren't serving those masters, I, I doubt that Samurai would, would be wanting to do this project. But because it does those things, it does them all so well. Uh, it's a really exciting opportunity. And one, as I was saying to Sam before this call started in earnest, that I hope we're able to replicate in other spaces uh, between our organizations to do more of this kind of work. Yeah, Travis, well, I want to double and triple down on something I think is really important yeah. that Jeff said, and he's, he's mentioned it twice, and it's critical in my opinion. He, he's exactly right. When we first started talking about let's find ways to collaborate, we were looking in a different area. But what the um, folks who rolled up the sleeves and actually put this program together, both from my team and Jeff's team, did smartly is they went out and talked to potential employers and said, what are your pain points? What are the things that you need? What is the kind of skill sets that we should build? What's the profile of an ideal um, employee? And so it's very much the mindset of a solution pull versus a supply push saying, we've created this curriculum, we have this offering, and I know somebody out there could probably use it. And that really, and, and the ability for folks to first listen and ask and then say, hey, our initial response or initial thinking was wrong and to pivot and end up here is something that I think is really important. It's going to be more important in the future. And um, that's how this came together. And I'm, I'm really proud of that offering. And, and I agree with Jeff's, you know, stay tuned. There'll be a lot more of these um, partnerships and, and um, collaborations. And again, they will be 
solution driven. Well, and I'm going to almost pose the same question to you, Sam, that I posed to Jeff, because inclusive growth, sector focused and increased collaboration uh, are really cornerstones of Cortex. And especially as we're as you look at the, uh, the future of Cortex and this next iteration of Cortex, Cortex, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary, right? This is you know, Cortex is an overnight success, 20 yeah. years in the making type of thing. But uh, how important are those three things for what, how you see Cortex evolving down the road? Well, I, I think, Travis, that if we don't embed those things in the center of our ethos, then we will not serve the region like we should and can. We have a mindset, you know, Cortex has 17 employees and boy, if things go great and they come together nicely, we'll get to 20 someday. So we're not going to be a major employer in the region. Cortex, um, you know, there are thousands of jobs in the district. There are um, hundreds of millions of investments, but none of that will come from Cortex. So our strength is through our power to convene and to find partners and attack solutions that employers care about. And then to do it in a way that has a um, in- inclusion, is it's, there's intentionality with our inclusion. It's not an afterthought. Because we won't fully achieve our um, aspirations as a thriving region if we can't figure out ways to um, help employ people who are underemployed or unemployed and tap into skill sets and and to skill up. And um, so that's why one of the things that Cortex in our new strategic plan is a, a higher emphasis on talent development. Because again, employers in the tech world, when they ask, when you ask, what are your pain points? They say, boy, I need the talent. Can you help me get the talent I need to grow? And the second thing they say is, we have made a commitment and we're serious about having a more diverse tech workforce. Can you help with that as well? And Travis, I'm convinced, and and I don't think anyone's gotten it right across the US or the world. I'm convinced if Cortex can continue to do the kinds of thing that LaunchCode and Cortex are doing here, we will have a competitive advantage and we will... um, Folks will lean in from other uh, parts of the country to say, hey, maybe I should be there. Maybe I should be growing my business there. And that's a win-win for everyone. Well, I mean, we are talking on the mighty mocks, right? 50,000 watts all over the... This reaches a pretty uh, broad group of of listeners. Uh, So hopefully they will listen in and, and see this as something different and a different approach to workforce development, talent recruitment, and, uh, and really inclusive economic growth. Uh, I guess a, a really important question is how do people learn more about this? If they're, if they're employers wanting to get plugged in, or if they are veterans, you know, recently leaving the service and uh, have this security clearance, how do they get plugged into something like this? What's, what's the contact points? Sure. So glad you asked, Travis. We would uh, welcome particularly employers, companies who are faced with this particular challenge of how they uh, find the talent that they need for the future to grow their businesses. We want to engage with them on this so we can shape the program to their needs and continue to make it better and stronger as we go along um, and to find uh, homes for the people who are going to go through these programs within their companies. And we would invite anyone who's interested or people who are interested in exploring uh, from a learning perspective in the program to uh, to go to solutions.launchcode.org slash cortex. That's solutions.launchcode.org slash Cortex. They can find more about this program, how to participate with us, how to make sure this is successful for St. Louis and for the region. And you have uh, some seed funding or initial funding to run this pilot. Uh, 
two initial cohorts for the full-time program. Uh, what is what does success look like as as these you know as these pilots uh, take place? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, success is um, filling these classes up and finding employers who want to bring these people onto their teams. And I think if we do this right, we can do it in a way where both of those things get answered before we run the first day of class. We can engage employers who see the need for talent like this, get them plugged into the program. Uh, they can help us work through who the right people are to put in this program and then feel comfortable about onboarding them into their team right as they complete. So um, I think running a couple programs through with, and I'm not sure what the total enrollee amount is going to be at this point, but 20, 30 people in each of those first two cohorts running them through, demonstrating that this is a thing that can be done well, that can be done effectively, um, and then figuring out how we turn the crank over and over to create lots and lots of these people for companies here in St. Louis. Yeah, and not only not only these, but if you do have a longer view, um, going back to with working with these employers for a whole series of lifelong upskilling and learnings, because technology is changing so quickly that you can no longer just... Um, set it and forget it, right? This is uh, individuals in the in a tech world we live in. You better think, you know, it used to be the debate, is it K through 12, K through 16? I think now it's K through the rest of your life. And um, that career-long upskilling and learning will be something that every employer, certainly in the tech space, is going to want to have a place to do that. And I think this will be a platform for, we'll launch your a new employees come in, these data slots, and then in a year or 18 months, whatever the right interval is, you come back to us saying, do you have a, a one or two week module for upskilling and these new skill sets? And um, um, Jeff and I and, and our and our partners will be there to say, yes, we'll help you meet your needs, onboarding needs. And then success looks like some of these folks that have gone through our training programs initially are competing for C-suite um, jobs because they've uh, moved up the organization and, and added critical value. Love it. Well, you know, long gone are the days that you can get away with uh, one year experience for 30 consecutive years, right? Just kind of <laughs> flying under the radar and not really growing or evolving your skills. As technology continues to change, um, skills need to continue to evolve. The The website, once again, is solutions.launchcode.org forward slash Cortex. Uh, Jeff Mazur from LaunchCode and Sam Fiorello from the Cortex Innovation Community. Thanks so much for joining us today on Nothing Impossible. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, Travis. Real pleasure. And stick around. We'll have more Nothing Impossible right after this. Now back to Nothing Impossible on the Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. I'm Megan Lynch, alongside Julie Smith, our resident media literacy expert. And Julie, what we're looking at for everyone today is how they can verify information. We're seeing reports of a lot of misinformation, disinformation, which I believe is a lot of the times called propaganda. And just some reports that have been called into question. I don't recall a time in my life when I have seen so many videos, photos, and articles and tweets fact-checked, you know, in the last few weeks and frankly, in the last few days. So give us a sense of what you are seeing out there, you know, that, that you're worried is suspect. Well, can we start with some basic advice? Yeah. Um, what we know about misinformation, and remember, there's a difference between misinformation and disinformation. Disinformation is done deliberately, and malinformation is disinformation that's created with intent to harm. So what we know about false information is that it's not new. It's most effective when it's really emotional, and we're really emotional, typically during breaking news stories, when it's very difficult to verify anything in general. 
we know that a lot of times false information fills a vacuum. Uh, it usually claims to be the only source of truth. It's created not necessarily to change anybody's mind, but to reinforce beliefs. And sometimes it has a little nugget of truth in it, which makes it seem more believable. And the Russians are so good at this. You know, misinformation has been around forever, but now they're the first ones to wield it as a cyber weapon. It's the 2022 digital equivalent of dropping leaflets on your enemy, right? Because what they've done to create confusion in Ukraine is like they've They've knocked down government websites. They've hacked bank websites. They actually texted Ukrainian soldiers, encouraging them to flee or be killed. They were texting uh, Ukrainian citizens, telling them that the ATMs were going to be shut down just to create the sense of panic and confusion and break morale. And it's really, really effective. And the sad thing is, is that we have thousands of media choices to choose from where we can verify what is real, meaningful, valid, and true. And the people within Ukraine do not have the media options that we do. So it's really easy for us to say, oh, you know, we need to look for clickbait headlines. We need to look for all capitals or too much punctuation. And in reality, we have the luxury of being able to figure out what's real and what's not. And the people in Ukraine don't. And, and I think that that's really what one of the most interesting parts of this story. Julie, I'm wondering if part of the issue, too, as far as verifying some of the information on the ground there in Ukraine is the fact that maybe there aren't as many correspondents there reporting on events or they're miles away from where, you know, purported videos are being sent from. Right, right. I saw a reporter this morning claiming to be at an airport somewhere in Ukraine showing soldiers off in the distance. And he said they were Soviet or Russian, excuse me, Russian paratroopers. Well, we don't know that. You know, he could have said they were American and we wouldn't necessarily know because it's we we are so trusting of these people that give us information and we can't verify videos like that ourselves, especially when they're live. So Really, the, the most important thing to do is remember that if we have a really strong emotional response, that's a red flag. But there are tools we can use to verify videos and photos that are presented to us as news. And we have to remember how easy it is to repackage and reframe and recycle those. Uh, I think, what was it, Megan? One video was supposed to be from Ukraine, but it was from Syria in 2014 or something, right? Yes, there's videos from Beirut. Um, those paratroopers were actually a training exercise uh, <laughs> by the Russian government. I, I saw that just a few moments ago before we went on. I was looking that up as well. So, yes, there, you know, there's pictures from, I think they even use some pictures from Beirut, possibly, you know, it's just, it's just unreal, the things that are being recycled. The one that is freaky, though, are the two video games that yeah. have been used. Uh, you know, the Associated Press did some fact checking, and there's two video games where it's nighttime footage. Mm -hmm. So you can't see it, it looks a little blurry. Well, it could be because, you know, it's an instance, who knows? I don't know what the Ukrainian skyline looks like. I've never been there. Probably a lot of Americans haven't either. So how in the world, you know, do we determine, let's start with video. How do you, how do you check videos? Yeah, video's tough. Now, if there's a YouTube video, there's a site called the YouTube Data Viewer. It's put up by Amnesty International. You can take the URL of the YouTube video, put it on the YouTube data viewer. And what it will tell you is the date that it's originally been uploaded and where it was uploaded from. 
Now, that's a great tool if the video is on YouTube, but in many cases, the videos are on TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, etc. So that makes it a little tougher. And one thing that can work is if you watch the video, pause it, take a screenshot of that frame, and then do a Google reverse image search of that screenshot to see where else that video has been used. I'm wondering at this point, are the fact-checking sites catching up with some of these videos? Can we rely on them to Um, catch some of this at this point? I think that what they're dealing with is probably the largest amount of volume they have ever dealt with. So yes, yes, we need to check the fact checkers, but I think we also need to realize these people are probably completely swamped with content and that it might take a while for them to catch up. Let's talk about photos. Those are a little bit easier. I actually spent part of the morning using Google Lens on Twitter and going through photos that I saw posted tracking them back to places like BBC and Reuters and Associated Press, you know, to ensure that they were in fact photos. Yeah. Yeah. And not just legit photos, but photos from this week. That's important too, right? (laughs) Well, that's so true because the photos from 10 years ago are legit. They're just not current. Right. Yeah. They need to be current. So how does that work? How does someone do a reverse image search? Okay, there are a couple different ways to do it. Google reverse image search is a lot like a regular Google search, but instead of typing the text into the search bar, you take a photo and click and drag it into the search bar. That's one way. The easiest way really is if you are a Chrome user, you put the cursor over the photo, you right click it, and then you'll get a drop down menu. And one of those options says search Google for this image. And what you'll end up with then is every a list of every website that uses that same image. So that's how you can determine the provenance of a photo. And you know, in the, in the media literacy world, we always talk about who's the sender, who's the sender. Well, in this case, the sender and the originator can be two completely different things. And the originator usually is is the hardest to find. So, you know, your Aunt Mabel might share something on Facebook. So she's the sender, but you don't know where that meme or that piece of information or that photo or that video actually originated from. What about reports that we see on Twitter, Facebook, other social media platforms? You mentioned TikTok, where it's just these brief bursts of information. Right. What are some of the tactics that we can use to try to verify that information? Um, well, the first thing to remember is that these platforms are not legally responsible for anything posted on them by a third party. So the attitude is anything goes. So there's no, there's no incentive for these platforms to try to prevent misinformation from traveling on them because the more dramatic their content, the more likely we are to stay on their platform longer. Really what you have to do is just have little internal detectors activated all the time and asking yourself, uh, you know, where did this picture come from? Who is the source? Are they interviewing experts? Does that expert have credentials? Are the visuals that I'm being shown clearly labeled with the date and time? Am I given a warning before graphic content? Is this just filler or is this legitimate? You just have to ask yourself questions all the time. And sadly, I mean, Megan, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just trust everything? But we can't. We can't. The 
the onus is on us to determine what's real, meaningful, valid, and true. And it's even more difficult during times of breaking news when everything is so emotional and so raw and so new, and it's so difficult to verify. I even saw a foreign correspondent this week say that they are having a hard time with all the tools at their disposal when it Mm -hmm. comes to looking through, you know, the metadata and other ways that they have of verifying things that they are even having a hard time verifying some of the reports they're seeing. And basically she said, you know, we can't take a narrative at face value anymore. Isn't that a shame? Yeah. I mean, well, it, it makes your job as a reporter 10 times harder because you have to check everything over and over and over again. And it's, you know, it, it's a plus and a minus that we have thousands of news choices, right? It's great that we have thousands of news choices. Oh, we have thousands of news choices. <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's a feature and a bug. And that's why it, it, we have to be so careful about um, where we choose to get on our, on our information and how to verify what we, what we see. Now, you've talked a lot about lateral reading. When you see a report to go to other sites and see you know, if they're reporting the same thing. Unfortunately, we saw one of those cases this week where someone had reported that the Queen of England had died, but no one else was reporting it. So it was exposed pretty soon. People are getting savvy to it. Um, You know, in this case, is that even more important with what we're seeing out of out of Ukraine right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's really interesting, too. Like we can do lateral reading from different sites, but we have to recognize how the sites are different. So for example, you can do lateral reading and see on the BBC that Russia has invaded Ukraine. But if you go to RT, which stands for Russia Today, which most people don't know, they don't use the word invasion. They use offensive or incident, right? I saw something a couple of days ago that I did lateral reading on, and it turned out to be true. I was kind of disgusted that it was true. But it turns out that Putin has been saying that the Ukraine is full of Nazis and needs to be purged. And I thought, okay, that seems, that seems really outlandish. I want to check this out. Well, after it's reported by Reuters, the Associated Press, BBC, Al Jazeera, NBC, I'm like, oh, okay, then that must be really what he said. So lateral reading is a whole idea of not just taking one meme or one source at face value, especially if it's super dramatic, like the queen dying. Because if the queen dies, everybody's going to be talking about it, right? So lateral reading is super important. It's one of my favorite things. You posted some tips on Twitter today for people looking. And one of the things that I found interesting that it was new to me was looking at the actual URL of a website and the fact that some fake websites will put some extra letters at the end and make it look like they are... Uh, the same legitimate source you're used to going to. Thank you to KMOX virtual consumer editor, Megan Lynch, and our media literacy expert, Julie Smith. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Nothing Impossible. Podcast is on the Odyssey app. More St. Louis innovation next week. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your 
vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 